0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Mark chapter 3 is where we are, so you need a Bible on your lap. That would really serve you. So if you'll make sure you grab one, um, open that up to Mark chapter 3. That would be a a big help to you this morning. And just want to take a a quick moment to address last week. Uh, Dan preached for us last week. And did a phenomenal job. If you are here last week, uh, you got to hear that and uh, be a part of that. And Dan did wonderful. Isn't it such a blessing that God has given us to have multiple guys around our place who can all preach so well? That God is really gifted in that way. And it's such a blessing to sit under that and to uh, be pressed on the Spirit through that. And so thanks to Dan for preaching last week. Um, Dan is doing a really great job around our church, student ministry, redemption groups. He's over the greeting team. He wears like 19 different hats around here and is doing great with all of them. So Um, Okay, Uh, Mark chapter three, by way of preface into this passage, let me start this way. Have you ever noticed in you this tendency that as you're working in your life, so you're working in your marriage, you're working in your job, you're working like whatever you're doing, maybe your school, whatever kind of your life consists of right now, as you're working in your life, have you noticed that tendency that you have to forget and lose sight of the reason for your life? Are you seeing what I'm trying to say there? That as you're working in the grind of your life, how easy it is for you to lose sight of the purpose for your life. Like We get in the middle of just doing things and and we so easily miss like the main things. Okay, you see, see what I'm trying to get at there? That that tendency exists in you, it exists in me. If you need evidence of that, just go to the story of Mary and Martha and watch that play out. Where, where Martha is doing all of this stuff and just losing sight of the main thing, like Jesus is in her house, right? And so it's just this tendency that we all have, that you have, that I have, in the middle of doing the things that, that we have to do in life to lose sight of the reason for our life. It's called mission drift. Now, if you just think about that in terms of your personal tendency to that, and then you get six or 700 of us together as a church family, and multiply that by six or seven hundred. That's what you have in a church. That is how prone we are as a church family to lose sight of what it is that God has called us to do. In light of us doing a bunch of things, good things, serving here, doing that, doing this over here, in light of doing all of those things, we as a church family have a propensity all church families do, have, has a propensity to lose sight of the main things that God has called us to. And so now in light of that, I just want to take a moment to, to re what it is that God has called us as a church and really all churches to be about. They may have different language to put on this, but what it is that God has called us to be about. This is the way we say it and articulate it around Stonegate, that we are about extending the glory of God by making disciples. I guess we got, God is not giving us anything better to do than to make disciples. We are about extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this one more time. God has not given our church family anything better to do than to make disciples. There's no better way we can spend our time. There's nothing that God has given us that's better to do than for us to make good disciples. This is part of what Jesus is saying in some of his last words to his disciples, Uh, Do you remember this at the end of Matthew, Great Commission, Matthew 28, um, 16 through 20, where he looked at his disciples, some of his last words, and said, this is what I want you to be about. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. Make disciples being the main verb. I want you to make disciples. This is the, the mission of your life. This is what I've called you to do as a church family. We have nothing better to do than to make disciples. Nothing better to do than that. This is what God has called us to be about, extending the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in light of that being the main thing that God has called us to do, this passage is really helpful for us in Mark 3. Now, in this passage that we're about to work through today, there are no commands for us. Jesus is not looking at you and I and saying, do this in this passage. But here's what Jesus does do in this passage. He gives us kind of a sneak peek at what a disciple is. He's showing us in this passage, he's not telling us what to do, he's just showing us what life in the kingdom, what life following Jesus, what life as a disciple, what that life is and what that life isn't. Maybe you can think of it this way, one of the things that this passage is doing is answering the question, what is a disciple? What what is that? Okay, now I think there's five things that we could probably draw out of this passage in light of this question, what is a disciple? So, five things, let's work through it. The first one is going to be 7, 8, 9, and 10. Mark 3, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Read this with me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. And you might just underline that, that word, great, or two words, great crowd. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumei and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and, and uh, Sidon. From the great crowd... Or when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So here's the first thing we're going to learn in this passage about what a disciple is and what a disciple isn't. A disciple is not a fan of Jesus. That's not what a disciple is. A disciple is not a fan. So like, what we have going on in this passage is Mark is showing us that Jesus had an enormous crowd around him. And he's stressing a couple of things in this passage in regard to this crowd. He wants us to see that the crowd is very large, but he also wants us to see that it comes from a really wide geographic area. So you've got all the way down to the south, Jerusalem and beyond, roughly 100 miles to the south is is this geographic area that it's describing here. Roughly 50 miles to the north. And then you've got beyond the Jordan to the east. So you've got a huge geographic area. So he's trying to show us here, Mark, that this crowd is not only large, but it comes from a very large area. And the second thing he's trying to show us is that this crowd comes from a very diverse area, culturally, all over the map. So you've got some parts of this that would be primarily Jewish. You've got some that would be almost exclusively Gentile, non-Jewish. And you've got other parts that would be a mixed bag of both of those two things. And part of what Mark is showing us here that that crowd... is is from large geographic area, a very wide and diverse cultural kind of background, and Jesus cuts through them all. Now, just allow that to just acclimate us to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's bigger than race. It's bigger than cultural background. Like Jesus has a way of slicing through all of those things that normally divide people. So so this crowd is huge. But this is the main thing that Mark shows us really throughout his gospel about the crowds. The main thing he tries to show us is that the crowds are following Jesus for the wrong reason. That the crowds really don't want Jesus. The crowds want stuff from Jesus. This is what Mark consistently tries to show us. They are there for the dog and pony show, for the lights and lasers. They're there because someone's about to get healed. Maybe it's going to be them. They are there because maybe Jesus is about to turn another fish into an all-you-can-eat buffet. This is the reason they're there. They want something from Jesus. The ironic thing about the crowd, and just take this passage where Jesus says they're about to crush me. The ironic thing about the crowd is that they will crush anyone between them and Jesus, but they really don't want Jesus. That's the ironic thing about them. Mark is very intentional throughout his gospel to show us that there is a difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower or a disciple. There is a difference of being in the crowd and being a Christian. Those two things are different things. Fans, I mean, just think about this. You know this, especially if you've ever rooted for a sports team. When things are going well for that sports team, what happens? It's this thing called bandwagon fans, isn't it? You ever met one of those guys? Yeah, yeah. We all have, right? That when things are going well, they are all in. But as soon as it costs them something to be a fan, things aren't going so well, they are all out. This is bandwagon fan. See, the problem with fans is that fans are really fickle. Fans are in it when there's something in it for them and they're out when there's nothing in it for them. Okay, now let's just apply this culturally to where you and I live. Our culture is made up of fans of Jesus. Just people in the crowd who, when things are going well, they love it. I mean, this is always, it's one of the most ironic things when I think about the question, why do people show up to church? And can I just tell you why I think the majority of people show up to church on Sunday morning? It's because that's what people do on Sunday morning. I mean, it would be right next to like a hobby in their life. And that is a bad hobby, can we all agree? This is not a good hobby. I mean, if you want a hobby, there is something better you could do with your time. I mean, it's the weirdest cultural phenomenon when it comes to these things. Listen to one author describe this idea of culturally, how um, since we kind of live in still kind of a Bible belt-ish sort of 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 a culture, that it's so easy to be a fan. This is how he describes it. He says, My concern is that many of our churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to becoming stadiums. And every week, all the fans come to the stadium where they can cheer for Jesus, but have no interest in truly following Jesus. The biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians, but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. I mean, this is the rich young ruler, isn't it? Do you remember that scenario? What must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, sell all you have and come and follow me. No go. So there's limits to that. I mean, Jesus, you can ask me to do a lot of things, but not that. If you want me to follow you, you can ask me to do X, Y, and Z. But that right there, is an, that's non-negotiable. A fan, just in the crowd. Okay, now let me just clarify This. I would rather have a fan than a Pharisee any day of the week. Amen? But we would rather have fans and Pharisees. But I just want you to, to know this. That as, if, if you right now would, would say, man, I am in the fan category. I, I'm in that crowd. I want you to know that we are a place I hope you can come and be challenged and feel like, man, we are for you because we are for you. Now, I know that on any given Sunday, there's a lot of, of that in our crowd, but I just want you to be, I want to be totally upfront and honest with you. I just want you to know that we have been called to not make fans, but to make followers, to make disciples of Jesus. People have pushed all the chips in and, and just so you can know what you can expect from us, it's going to be a constant encouragement and a constant pushing on you toward that, to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, the question comes then, well, what is a disciple? If that's a fan, well, what's a disciple? Okay, let me just try to articulate what a disciple is and give you some imagery for that. Okay, so you you could throw words out like a learner. That would be true. That's what a disciple is. That's what the the, the word means. Apprentice would be another word that would be used to, to describe that. A follower of Jesus. All those things would be used as kind of general kind of ideas to describe what a disciple is. But let me kind of give you this statement that maybe would help you wrap your brain around it. A disciple is a person who has a continual, ongoing, life-defining relationship with Jesus. Life-defining. Like, uh, that love for Jesus trumps every other love in their life. Life Life-defining. Like, that sort of a a defining relationship with Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Someone with a constant, ongoing, life-defining relationship with Jesus. I'll never forget the moment um, where I was standing in front of a church and had all my best friends up beside me. And all of a sudden, this really, 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 really pretty lady busted through the back doors in a white dress. Husband, y'all remember that moment? So I'm standing in the front of of this uh, sanctuary and she comes walking down. I mean, it is one of the most exciting moments in my life. It's happening like right now in this moment. And uh, I'll never forget the sobering, uh, you know, the sobering moment where the pastor uh, asked me to to grab Laura's hands and to answer a question that went something like this. Do I remember this moment? Rodney, do you take Laura to be your wedded wife? To have and to hold, like when it's convenient for you, maybe once or twice, you know, a week, you know, on the days that you really feel like it, then you do it. That's not what that moment sounded like, did it? That was not the question you got asked. Here was the question I got asked in that moment. Rodney, do you take Laura to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish for as long as you both shall live? I would call that a life-defining relationship, wouldn't you? That that is life-defining. That is you pushing all the chips in and come what may, here we go. Like, the the picture of marriage in the Bible is one in which every facet of your life and another person's life overlaps. Every facet. This is what it means to be one in the Bible. That There is nothing kept out of that relationship. That, that That everything overlaps. Everything is together. Okay, now... And it's interesting that in the Bible, marriage, according to Ephesians 5, is the premier metaphor for the gospel, the premier metaphor for what our relationship with Jesus looks like. And and so when I'm thinking about this moment where I said, I do to that vow, that that is just a faint shadow of the moment of conversion of me saying, I do to Jesus. See, like what Jesus is after is that sort of a life defining relationship. See, if if you were to call me and say, hey, Tuesday night, you want to go watch a movie? Here's what I'm going to tell you. Well, hold on just a second. I'm going to have to call Laura and check. Why? Because that's a life-defining relationship. And Jesus is saying this, just like that, that, that's the sort of life-defining relationship that I have with disciples, with people who have pushed their chips in. It alters every part of their life. See, that's the difference between fans and followers, Fans, it's not a life-defining relationship. It's when it's convenient, great. If it's not, no worries. We can jump on the bandwagon just as easily as we can jump off the bandwagon. But what it means to be a disciple, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, saved and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus, what it means to be that person is that Jesus defines every area of your life. So this is what a disciple is. It's not a fan. It's a person who Jesus defines them. That's what a follower of Jesus is. Number two, what is a disciple? Number two, a disciple is more than a confession. A disciple is more than a confession. So in our culture, for most people, this is what it means to be a Christian for most people in our culture. What it means is I agree, or first, I'm aware of some facts. So someone has told me somehow I've become aware of there are some facts about Jesus, what he's done, all of that. Lived a perfect life, died on a cross. I'm aware of some facts. And what most people equate as as being redeemed by God, what it means to be saved by God, most people equate that this is what it means. Not only that I'm aware of those facts, but I agree with those facts. So I'm agreeing with these facts and that saves me. So let this be like big moment for us just to see this, that agreeing and being aware of facts saves no one. No one. If that were true, demons would be saved. Okay, look at, verse, look at verse 11, Mark 3, verse 11. If it were true that all we needed to be saved was an awareness of facts and the agreement of facts, then this demon right here would be in good shape. Look at what it says in verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out. Now look at how theologically accurate this statement is this guy is sold on this being true. He he cries out, you are the son of God. I mean, this, this demon, he knows his theology. He he is aware of the facts and he agrees with the facts. But can we all just see this? That demon isn't saved. That demon has not entered into a relationship with Jesus that redeems and rescues all of them. That has not happened. Being saved, like putting your faith or your belief in Jesus is more than agreeing. It's not less than, but it's more than agreeing, being aware of and agreeing with facts. So so this is how we've said this. And I used this imagery a few months ago. And I want to use this one more time just in hopes that this sticks somewhere in you when you start thinking about what saving faith is. That it's not just being aware and agreeing with facts it is when these facts have a realizing sense to them. Like they become tangible and real, not just like theoretical and somewhere out there, but like down here, real. Like when they collide with and explode in your heart, that's the moment of saving faith. And to illustrate that a few months ago, we used this imagery of honey. And I stole it from Jonathan Edwards, an old Puritan pastor, but he describes it like this. If you could picture some honey out on the table and someone comes to you and says, "Do you see that honey? Do you see that rich golden texture that it has? That that beautiful color." Then I mean, when you taste honey, that honey is so sweet, it's unbelievable. They tell you all the facts about honey. And even to the point where you could turn around and get the next person beside you and regurgitate the facts to them about honey. You know the facts. But, but knowing those facts is not the picture of saving faith. Saving faith is the picture of when that honey, that you know all the facts about it, when that honey for the first time hits your tongue and explodes on your taste buds, that's the moment of saving faith. When, when all of these facts about Jesus that you know become real to you and explode in your heart, with a love and a, and a worship of Jesus. That's the moment of saving faith. And it's so interesting, because I talked about it, to, to like use that imagery for people like our culture, who, who awareness and agreement with facts, that's where it's at. Every time I give that, that picture of saving faith, this is what like inevitably is the response. Well, if that's saving faith, I'm not sure that I have it. And can I just say, if that's you, I'm not sure that you have it either. Like, that that would be a great question for you to, like, set up, shop on, and dig into. Like, saving faith is bigger than agreement. It's bigger than awareness. It is those things becoming tangible and real. It is honey hitting the tongue. That's saving faith. So let this be a warning for, for all of us in the room that if, if that's us, if we are in that category, and I'm, I'm not sure that that's sort of a realizing sense. I mean, I know that I agree with the, the, the facts. I'm aware of the facts, but I'm not sure that I've had that realizing sense of them. I, I just want you to be aware of this, that the demons are aware and agree. They just don't have the realizing sense. And I'm not saying that if you don't have the realizing sense, it makes you a demon. That's not what I'm saying. Just be clear on that. I'm just saying that the demons have that as well, right? So so maybe that would be a good question for us to ask. Am I just depending on some confession about what what I've agreed with as far as facts? Am I depending on that to make me right with God? And if so, all I'm trying to do is just sound the warning that that doesn't make you right with God. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. So a disciple is, is more than being a confession. Number three. A disciple is created by Jesus. And this is the good news of the gospel about the land on this room right now, this morning. A disciple is created by Jesus. Look at verse 13. Mark 3, verse 13. And he, talking about Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him. Like he said, hey, you come here. He called to them, those whom he desired and they came to him. So he called. Now, verse 13 is a little bit difficult to translate. This idea of he called to them, those whom he desired, and they came. Um, I, if I were throwing my chips in line, maybe the best way to translate that, just to give it the best sense of that verse, I might say it this way, that he summoned to him those he willed. willed. Like, like he summoned. He, he looked at, at, at some of these people and said, you, come over here. He called them. And in response to that call, they said, yes, I am in. So, so here's what we're seeing, that to be a disciple requires the initiating work of God in our life. I see, see, here's what's happening in this passage. Jesus says, come after me. And they respond to that grace and say, yes, I am in. I'm in. Whatever you say, wherever you ask me to go, I am in for that. Jesus initiates and they respond to that. And if you're a disciple, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, it was, it, the same thing happened to you. There was a moment where God initiated. He changed and started to remake your heart. He, he said, you, come and follow me. And in response to that, there was a moment, if you're a Christian, where you held up your hands to God and said, yes, I am in for that. Now, now, welcome to the grace of the gospel. Welcome to the one-way love of God that breaks down every barrier between you and him. So this is what we're seeing here. That this one-way love of God, this grace of God to undeserving and ill-deserving people. See, it's, it's God coming after, breaking down every barrier. Every part of the obstacles that we have set up between us and God, it is Jesus running over every one of those obstacles, initiating, remaking our hearts so that when we look at that call of God, we say yes to that. It's the initiating work of God. And you know, you even see it in how Jesus approached his disciples. In the first century world, the the way Jesus is coming to his disciples would, would feel scandalous to everyone looking at it. See, for the rabbis of his days, for the teachers of his days, this is how it went. Students approached the rabbi. So if, they, if a student found someone that they wanted to, to, to learn from and to have a, this model in front of them, they would have to work up the courage and the initiative to go over to that rabbi and, and say, can I follow you? But Jesus is just the opposite. It wasn't rabbi- or the students coming to Jesus. It was Jesus going after his disciples. It was Jesus initiating with them. It was Jesus taking the first step toward them. This is the grace of the gospel that we're talking about here. This is is Jesus' one-way love coming after you. And then look at verse 14. The third word of verse 14. And he appointed 12. He appointed 12. Now that's a really interesting word, that word appointed. In the Greek, that means to make or create. So I think it means more than he, he looked at some people who kind of had what it took and he appointed them to the job. That's not the idea. The idea is he made them. He recreated them for it. That this is the idea. He made these disciples. That, that Greek word appoint there, that word in the Greek is the same word when, uh, when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. It's the same word used to translate Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1.1, when God, or in the beginning, God created, God made the heavens and the earth. That word created, made in Genesis 1.1, it's the same Greek word used to translate that. The God making something, creating something. So I think Mark is actually trying to tell us something here. Something similar to what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, that anyone who is in Christ, they are a new creation. That God like actually remakes you. That the old is dead, it's killed, it's done away with, and the new has come. And can we just take a moment to celebrate what Mark's walking us into there? That if, if you're a Christian in the room, God has absolutely and totally remade you. He didn't just tinker with a couple of parts on you. It's a 100% overhaul of you. Totally remade. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, if you're, if you're a person who you know this morning that you're not, you're not in with Jesus, there's never been a moment where you have stepped across the line of faith. Can I just say this is what Jesus holds out in front of you? Totally remaking every part of you. Old gone, new come. And for those who that has happened to you, there has been this moment of faith where you have stepped across that and you've been redeemed and saved by God. For, for those that, that that's you, it is your, your heart being melted by that sort of amazing grace toward you, your heart being melted by that amazing grace toward you that makes all the duty of discipleship seem like delight. Can I say that one more time? If you're, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ in the room, it's you celebrating and your heart being melted by This amazing grace of God that remakes you, that summoned you, that called you, that saved you. It's your heart being melted by that that makes all the duty of being a disciple a delight for us. See, it's what makes, like what we're about to to go to next, it's what makes, what God has called us to do as a disciple, it's what makes that possible for us. So number four, A disciple's three purposes. A disciple's three purposes. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that. Okay, that's purpose. He's about to walk us into what disciples do. Like what it is that disciples are to be about. So that they might be with him And he might send them out to preach, verse 15, and have authority to cast out demons. So let me kind of walk you through the threefold purpose of a disciple. This is what God has called disciples to be about. This is the purposes of God for your life if you're a Christian. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like, right here. Three purposes. Number one, to be with Jesus. Do you see that in verse 14? to be with Jesus so that he called these 12, he appointed these 12, he made these 12. Why? So that they could be with him. Now it's interesting. If if you were Jesus and you had three years to do everything you needed to do to change the world, I'm just thinking this. If I just called 12 people to me, had three years to change the world, my first just instinct is to break out the to-do list and to get it going. If I have three years to get, you know, to get this thing going, it's everyone's got their list and let's all get the list accomplished. But can I just say, Jesus does not start with a to-do list. Before you are called by God to do anything for Jesus, you are simply called by God to be with Jesus. Before God gives you any task to get out there and do, he just says this, will you just be with Jesus? This is similar to John 15, 4, where Jesus says, listen, here's what I want from you. I want you to abide in me. Before I'm calling you to do anything for me, I want you to just be with me, to abide in me. Moms and dads in the room, can I just tell you the most important thing in your life? The most important thing in your life is that you are with Jesus and know Jesus. It's the most important thing. If you're a teenager in the room, single in the room, the most important thing in your life is to be with Jesus and to know Jesus. It's the most important thing. It's not to do a lot of things for you. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is for you to be with Jesus and to know Jesus. And and I want to just encourage you on two habits that cultivate being with Jesus and knowing Jesus. Two habits that just cultivate and walk us into that. And let me just emphasize these two things really quickly. Number one is that you spend time in your Bible. That that is one of God's primary graces for you to know him and to spend time with him. Maybe I could say it this way. There is no substitute in the life of a disciple for reading and listening to and hearing and spending time in your Bible. There is no substitute for that. There's not like something you can kind of stick in its place and you're okay. There is no substitute for you spending time in your word. So maybe I could just, and this is, by by the way, one of the reasons why we constantly encourage you to get Bible reading plans. We have one in 2013 that we've invited our entire church family to do and to be on together. Make sure you pick one up. You can probably pick one up on your way out. If not, you can download it from the website. But make sure you are reading your word. It is one of the primary things that we can encourage you toward. There is no substitute for that in the life of a disciple. And secondly, to kind of go right around that and end with that would be prayer that you're reading your word, and and prayer is just conversation with God. It's you communing with God. It's you getting to know God. Every morning, it's so funny, on the way to to Stonegate, uh, as we kind of corporately gather, either Hannah or Caleb will ride with me, and we always pray on the way, and I always ask them, "What, what is prayer? Like, why are we doing this? And their standard response now is, we're talking to God. This is what prayer is. It's you getting to know this God who has redeemed you and rescued you. That there's no substitute for, for reading your word and praying, conversing, spending time with communing with God in the life of a disciple. So can I just encourage you toward that? Maybe It would be, be a great thing to kind of work through in your home group on whether or not that's happening in your life. So first thing Jesus says is, here, here's what a disciple is. This is the purposes of a disciple. Here, here's the first one. Be with me. Like, get to know me. Not just about me, but get to know me. Here's the second one. His disciples are not just with Jesus. They are sent by Jesus. Sent by Jesus. Look at verse 14. And he appointed the 12 whom he also named apostles so that that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. And then verse 15. And have authority to cast out demons. This is really similar to in in Mark chapter uh, 1 where Jesus calls the first four disciples. He says, listen, I'm going to I, I'm, you come and follow me? Come and follow me. And I'm going to make you into something, namely fishers of men. It's the same exact thing we have going on here. And, and let me just throw out to you the two things he gives us as we are being sent out. The, the two ways we are sent are the two things that we are sent with. And you see it in verses uh, 14 and 15 here. The, the, he sends them out to preach. So, so here's what God is saying, is, saying to us here that we have a message to get out, that our lips are meant to declare the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, the gospel can only be known by words. Like there are facts about the gospel that people have to be made aware of. And those facts are only made aware through you opening up your mouth, me opening up my mouth and talking about them. Like, so, so who is Jesus? He is the son of God, fully man, fully God. What did Jesus do? He he lived a perfect life in place of our very imperfect life. He died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead on the third day. What must we do in light of that? We've got to believe in Jesus. That is trusting and treasuring Jesus, holding up our life and giving God everything all out, 100% surrender to Jesus. And then what happens to us? We are saved and redeemed by God. We're adopted into the family of God. We're sent on the mission of God. See, people can only know that when other people tell them that. See, there is a message that our lips have to be about declaring. But but it's not just declaring a message with our lips. It's also demonstrating that message with our lives. That there is a message that needs to be demonstrated. And, And this is what he says in verse 15 there. That God has given us the authority to cast out demons. I I would take that, generally speaking, as to live in such a way that demonstrates the power of the gospel. That this is what God has given you. A life to support your lips. See, life and lips go together. We we get to declare the message and the power of the gospel with our lips. And we get to demonstrate the power of the gospel with our lives. And see, when, when life and lips get separated, things go really badly. See, for some of us, our lives have sabotaged the effects of our lips. See, and the opposite can also be true. Our lives can also help the the power of the gospel, that message, to sink deep into the hearts of people. So it's both life and lips. And we've talked about those themes a lot. So here's what I want to do. I want to take just a few minutes here And I want to try to give some practical handlebars on how living on mission plays out in a person's life. So I want to try to get on the ground, very, very practical for a few minutes. So let let me start by saying this on just a real practical level. Handlebar number one here, just as a preface that there is nothing more important as you're living on the mission of God. So this is in your neighborhood. This is in your workplace. This is within your social circles. There is nothing more important as we are living on the mission of God as cooperation with and attentiveness to the Holy Spirit. Nothing more important. And, And let me try to describe why that is. And so let's just take it in the context of maybe a neighbor that you have. Your neighbor is going to range on a spiritual sensitivity scale. They're going to range, let's just say on a one to 10 sort of a scale. Let me just frame up the one to 10 here. Let's say the 10 over here would be this. A 10 would be like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. Do you remember that story where Philip is walking down a road? He sees this, this man reading Isaiah. Like how often you just walk by a neighbor and they're reading Isaiah in the front yard. And Philip asked the man, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand it? And the guy says, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? Will you please explain it? Philip tells him about Jesus. The guy gets saved just like that. That's a 10 on the scale. They're reading Isaiah in the front yard when you walk up. That's 10. A one on the scale is the neighbor who, when you bring up Jesus, he tried to punch you in the face. That's a one. Okay, do we see the scale, the the range that we're dealing with here? See, this is why being sensitive to the Holy Spirit is so important. Not every conversation is a finish line conversation. Not every conversation is taking the 10 and and telling them Jesus and them getting saved in that moment. That is not every conversation. This is why Paul would say sometimes we get to water, sometimes we're planting seed, sometimes we get to harvest. See, sometimes we get that conversation, but other times we are the person who takes the one on the scale. Like when he hears Jesus, he wants to punch someone. We take that guy or that woman and we just get to be the person who moves them to a two. We just get to be a friend to them who demonstrates Jesus in a a persuasive way just moving them from a one to a two, not a one to a 10, not a finish line, just a one to a two. So this is why it's so important. So there's, so maybe I could say it this way. There's two ditches that all of us fall into when it comes living, to living on mission. Here's ditch number one. Ditch number one is we have no field. So we go into the guy that's in like spiritual sensitivity range number one, punching everybody that says Jesus. We go into that conversation with Bible in hand, our diagrams and our charts all put together as if that's going to be a good option. That's ditch number one, that we have no feel and no sensitivity to where a person is and what God would have us, the role God would have us to play in this moment in this conversation. Now the other ditch, and this is probably the majority of us in the room, The other ditch is, man, we've been a friend of this guy for 33 years and we just can't, I I think it's going to take year 34 before we finally have a good enough friendship to go to the next level. Okay, that's the other ditch. So one is we have no feel. The other is we'll never broach the difficult conversations. We'll never get there with people. So now I just want to invite you into this third way, like this road between the two ditches. The road looks like this. We actually invite people who don't know Jesus into our life. We're actually a friend to them, not to get things from them, but to serve them. Like we're actually a good friend, like someone who, who would take their trash out when they forget it, like just a, a good friend to them that checks in on them periodically. That, that's just a friend. And along the way, we get to take steps in appropriate ways that lead to conversations about what's most important in life, namely Jesus. So let me just give you a picture of what that can look like. It's going to be on the screen for you. If you think about, just take it in terms of your neighbors, your friends, whatever. If you think about life in layers, here are the layers as far as how they peel off of people as you're getting to know them. Layer number one, we might call superficial commonalities and interests. It's me talking about the weather and the cowboys to my neighbor. Pretty easy to do doesn't feel overly threatening. He's got an opinion. I've got an opinion. I think Romo's awesome. He hates Romo. I mean, the whole thing, you know? So it's just superficial commonalities and interests. And then you peel back that layer and you get to their story, families, their likes, their opinions. So you get to ask questions like, what's your story? Where are you from? Tell me about the the themes of your life, how life has played out for you. And listen, do do you know that people are fairly open with their story? That if you ask questions about it, most people don't have a problem talking about it. Like they will. Your neighbor probably would. And then you get to to another layer down where you're talking about hurts and hopes. Some of the things that they've been most disappointed in. Some of the things that most excite them. So so you get to another layer down where, where this is vulnerability here. You're talking hurts and hopes. And then in the middle of that, you've got what we're going after. These conversations about God, about faith, about gospel. That's where we're going. Okay, now I just want to give you maybe a picture for how this works itself out in the context of relationships. So on the ground, in your neighborhood, you've got people you're trying to have gospel conversations with. or working into that. Maybe this could be a picture for you just to get a sense of how this would work. That if you just take it from the last rung, just superficial commonalities, you're just trying to spiral inward by asking good questions. You don't have to jump right to the middle, pulling out your charts and diagrams day one, right? That you can, you can go at that in an appropriate pace. So there's going to be moments where you're going to sense that you need to pull back. So your, your goal is not to alienate them. Your goal is to love and to serve them. So there's going to be moments where we need to, to slow back and to slow the spiral down. There's going to be other moments where they break out Isaiah and you get to go right to the middle. But it's just you having a sense of what would be appropriate as we spiral in to the, to the middle of the, the core of where conversation needs to go. Does that make sense? Okay, now in light of that, I, I want to I stop here and uh, talk a couple of things that relates to Stonegate Church. Living on the mission of God as missionary sent by Jesus. I think it is one of the primary areas of unhealth in our church family. I just want you to feel that and get a sense of that. that I think this is still one of the primary areas of unhealth. And so I, I really, more than anything in this moment, I want to invite you in to pray for our church family in that to pray for you in that, that that we would all be living as missionaries, that that we would all be inviting people into our life, getting to know people who don't know Jesus, that we would be talking about gospel to them, all that Jesus has done for us, and that like you and I, that we all would have stories about how God is using our family for the good of people who don't know Jesus. It's one of the areas, I think, probably one of the top one or two areas in our church right now that would just be a mark of what I would call unhealth. Which means, and I just want to make sure you apply that one step further down. If it's it's a mark of unhealth across our church family, it's because we as the families that make up our church, it's not happening there. It's not a part of, of who we are and how we're living. And part of what Jesus is saying here is this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. That we're living on the mission of God. And he so said, I, I want to just give you one homework assignment, and I'd love for you to work this out in your home groups this week. That over the month of May, that you would invite someone into your home that doesn't know Jesus. Dinner, whatever. That you'd invite someone into your home that you would be initiating friendships That getting to know people who are far from God, that you would be initiating like across the dinner table, sort of no, not like I've heard their last name once and I know one of their three kids, but like across the dinner table, sort of no. So over this month, over the month of May, that you would invite someone into your home that is far from God. Okay, last purpose of a disciple and we're on, we're landing the plane here. Last purpose, number three. And so I want you to notice this, that it's not just be with Jesus and it's not just be sent by Jesus, but it's be with Jesus and be sent by Jesus together. Like that's the call. And, and so this you know, practically works itself out in home groups for us as a church family. So I just want to give you the invitation. If you're not being with Jesus and being on mission with Jesus and doing all of that together, that you are forfeiting one of God's primary means to grow you as a disciple. If you're, if you're not in that, if you're keeping your life kind of segmented and kind of isolated, you are forfeiting one of God's primary means of grace to you. And so if you're not in a home group at Stonegate, can we just invite you into that? Um, if you, on your way out, if you stop at the foyer at the Connection Central, they'll have all of our home groups there for you. That'll help you find one that's close to your house. And I just want to invite you in to jumping into community. The, Christianity is not meant to be like an individual sport, it is a team sport. It's meant to be lived with other people. We're with Jesus together, and we're on mission with Jesus together. And lastly, and we're done. I want you to look at this list of names here, starting in verse, seven, or verse 16. Look at this list. It says, he appointed the 12, verse 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Uh, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and and Simon the Zealot and uh, uh, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And and let me just kind of leave with this last point lingering this morning. Number five, a disciple is anyone who's willing to follow Jesus regardless of the cost. And can we just focus on that word, anyone Like, this list is supposed to show us that it's not for, like, the elites and the sophisticates of humanity. It is for anyone who wants Jesus, you can have Jesus. That's the great news of the gospel. It is for anyone. Like, if you're here, like, right now this morning, and there is something in you stirring of, man, I want Jesus. I want that Jesus. The great news of the gospel is you can have him this morning. Like like that list of disciples, they are all sorts, all shapes, all sizes on there. You've got fairly good people on there, and you've got really bad people like Matthew, the tax collector. You ask any first century person, who is the worst person you know? Here's what they're going to say, tax collector. And and can we just be reminded of this? That you cannot out-sin grace. And some of us in the room, like right now, you need to be reminded that regardless of how bad your past is, you have not out God's ability to save you. That anyone, anyone who wants Jesus like right now in this moment, you can have him. But there's also that word cost. Like there is a cost associated. When, when you follow Jesus, when you become a disciple of Jesus and you push all your chips in, it costs you everything, everything. And this is the ironic thing about life in the kingdom of God, that Jesus says it's those who keep their life that lose it and those who give their life away that actually gain it. I mean, the ironic thing is when you push all your chips in and you lose everything, it's at that moment that you actually gain everything, namely Jesus. Amen? I mean, I pray for more and more of that around here. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.